Psychology in Seattle. So some of you will email me and ask me to talk about group therapy and specifically process groups. And it's something that I don't currently do in my career, but I have in the past. And process groups are powerful therapeutic methods. You're in a group of, you know, four to eight people, and there's a therapist there, maybe two therapists, and you are there to process your feelings. You're there to talk about your relationships. You're there to talk about your identity and the struggles of your life. And these process groups can often become long-term situations for clients in which people are in process groups for for decades. I, I know one colleague who has a process group that's been continuously running for, um, I don't know, 15 years or something. And imagine how deeply connected you would be, not only to your therapist, but to your fellow group members. And the sort of interesting interactions that occur because the, the group therapist processing person, you know, facilitates conversations between the members so that they can, there can be very interesting things that can be said between the group members. And it's a bit of a shame in that our current uh, Medicaid or, I don't know, managed care system doesn't pay very much for this sort of thing. And so a lot of people as clinicians shy away from doing this work, even though there's a lot of clients who actually would want it. And also, it's a pain in the ass to organize because you have to get all these clients in. You have to do all these intakes and blah, blah, blah. And there could be dramas between the different group members. So anecdotally, it's, it's sort of a dying art. And I uh, lament that. Uh, patron Emily wanted to come on to the show to talk about her experience with process groups. And so I thought, what a wonderful opportunity to talk about that. Welcome to the podcast, Emily. Hey, glad to be here. Super excited. All the way from Philly, correct? Right, yeah. So this is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Emily? Uh, my name's Emily Capelli. I am also a therapist and a psychology professor here in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And you came to our first live show in Seattle, and we, we got to meet you there, which was really fun. Uh, so, uh, and aren't you starting a podcast or something? Isn't that something you're thinking about doing or have oh you started doing it? I'm sure all my friends are like really tired of me talking about it, but, um, you know, I have equipment and, you know, I have things that to record and ideas, but I've never really gotten it started. Um, so no, but I would, I would really like to, you know, do some field reporting for you. For, yeah. the, for the podcast. So I'm working on a few things in that area. Cool. So what can you tell us about process groups? First of all, um, I would like to say that I currently run a process group at, in my practice in Philadelphia, East Falls. In order to protect the group's privacy, I'm really only going to talk about process groups like in theory. Um, so I'm not really going to talk about the specifics of my process group yeah. So, um, so some background, uh, personal experience. I've I was in a process group for four for over four years. Um, I found it to be super super helpful. 
I saw the benefits of being in a process group pretty immediately. Um, you know, my social confidence increased, uh, my ability to connect with others increased, my compassion for myself and others increased, and a lot of my negative symptoms decreased overall. And I really attribute um, my professional identity and um, who I am as a therapist, what I believe in, a lot of that came from being in my process group. Um, so it really shaped my identity in a huge, huge way. How did you find a process group? Because they're kind of hard to find sometimes, right? Uh, yeah, they are. Um, actually, I think I found it on Psychology Today. So you just did a search in your area for a process group? Uh, I don't know that I even knew what process group was. I just knew like I needed help with something. Um, and I saw a group on Psych Today and I was like, okay, I'll try that. So I had no idea what process groups were. But you thought you might check out group therapy. Right, right. When you signed up to go, they screen you, don't they? Yes, they do. How did they screen you? They screened me. Um, I had to meet with uh, one of the one of the therapists um, a couple times. Um, usually it's just one time, but I met with this person a couple times. And they're like, okay, they gave me the green light and I started what do you think they were looking for in terms of screening you people out? I have the privilege of being on the other side now. So I started my process group a couple you know months ago. And um, so some of the things that I look for um, are, you know, someone who has a, you know, already has a lot of insight into where they are. And also someone who um, is up for the challenge of being in a process group. Because it's not easy. It is not easy to, to be in a group. Um, and so they kind of have to have that, like, what is it, ego strength to be in the in a process group. Yeah. So I'm, I'm sure that they were looking for something like that. And also, I'm guessing any severe mental illness or uh, mental conditions that would preclude, say, some delusional disorder or, mm -hmm. you know, acute anxiety. I, I don't know if people would be screened up for that. But anyway, um, so was it scary when you went to your first group? My God. Yes. Yes. It was so scary. I mean, for the first couple months, I would say every time I talked in my process group, like I, I would shake um, in my chair I was so scared. I was also, you know, in a very different place in my life. That version of Emily back then would never get on a podcast and talk to you like ever. Um, so it was a much different version of myself. How many people, how many other clients were there? It varied over the years, but I believe it was at that time about seven, seven people. And one therapist. Two. Oh, two therapists. Uh, just getting into some of the nuts and bolts, how much did it, how much did it cost? It was $70 a session. And the uh, insurance didn't help cover that? No, I never used insurance. I'm sure some, uh, actually, I'm not, I'm not even sure if insurance covers it, to be honest. I think it does if you diagnose everybody um, mm -hmm. with something that can be treated with group therapy. But the reimbursement rate, I think, is very uh, little. I think it's mm. like, from my memory, from other people, something like thirty bucks a client per mm. per meeting. You know what I mean? So that's a far cry from seventy per client. Yeah. Um, was the group an hour and a half? Yes. And uh, what 
kind of things that the people talk about, you know, without breaking anybody's confidentiality, you know, your fellow group members. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that sets process groups apart from any other kind of groups is the here and now. Um, that's a, that is a key part of process groups. Um, so what's going on with the here and now is there's kind of a two tier thing that's happening and there are two symbiotic tiers. So the first tier is the experiencing that someone that the group is experiencing. So they're experiencing, you know, the back and forth discussion. Um, they're experiencing how um, other members land, you know, how, what someone says lands person. Um, and then the second tier is the reflection on the process. So something happens and you kind of feel like, Oh, that wasn't very nice. I kind of feel hurt by that thing that that person said. Um, so you reflect on that. Um, sometimes it doesn't happen in the moment though. Sometimes it happens months later where you're like, Hey, you know that thing you said like three months ago that really hurt my feelings. Um, but that's the difference between any kind of other group, the here and now. Interesting. So when you were in the group, there would be conversations in which you or someone else might say to you, uh, that hurt my feelings, or I'm really sad about what you're saying right now, or what you're saying makes me angry, or what you're saying reminds me of this, uh, that kind of thing. Yeah, that, that would happen for sure. Um, or, you know, it doesn't have to be that hurt my feelings. It could be like, you know, I'm really proud of you. Um, you know, you're, I'm seeing a lot of growth in you. Um, and, and that can be really healing to hear that. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of like here and now stuff going on, but there's also like broader, there is um, stuff about, you know, oh, this is going on in my life and, and I really need some help in this area. Yeah, the groups that I've run, I found that the impact of the um, communication between or the corrective experiences between the group members was uh, on average greater than the corrective experiences conducted by the therapists themselves. In other words, when you're in a group mm -hmm. and your therapist says, well, I'm really proud of you and that's great that you're doing that or your therapist is normalizing to you or, or your therapist confronts you on something. That is uh, wonderful and can be very healing, um, can be very powerful. But there's something about a fellow client in the room saying things to you that seems more genuine on some level because they're not beholden to some professionality or some ethical code. They can be more uh, honest, at least that's the perception. And the that's where the group therapy power comes into play, I think, is because um, if it was just um, trying to treat every individual in the group, then you would just do an individual therapy. You know, why do you need a group? Well, one of the reasons why you need a group is because of that intensity between the clients in the group that uh, is really quite unique to that. Um, is that how you experienced it? Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, you know, a therapist can say something over and over again, but it just feels differently to have someone who really you're not paying them, you know, you're not, um, you're not beholden to them. 
they're just saying it out of care for you. Was it emotionally intense? Was there a lot of emotion happening? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. You know, it's very intense because, you know, process groups are actually supposed to kind of recreate our first group that we were ever a part of. And that's our family of origin. Um, and so a lot of the feelings that get brought up in the group are actually family of origin feelings. Um, so, yeah, they're supercharged, the, the, the feelings that come up um, because they're old you know? Yeah. Family of origin issues uh, make sense. And uh, also transferences to different group members, right? Like, uh, Mm -hmm. I imagine people might have seen you as their sister or something, um, or their ex part. Was it a a multi-gender group? No, no. It was all just women. In my experience, what I would see was that different roles. So as a systemic thinker, I see things that way. And so you'll, over time, the group will solidify into a homeostasis with different assigned roles. And you'll have the person who takes care of people. You have the person who calls people out on their shit. You have the person who confronts the therapist. You have the kiss ass who kiss asses to the therapist. You have the um, person who tries to be like a therapist. You have mm-hmm. the quiet one, you have the screwed up one, you have the dumb one, you know, you have the, in, the dependent one. And uh, these things solidify partially out of the personalities of the individuals, but also out of the outgrowth of how these people come together and how they choose over time to solidify through routines. Uh, for example, someone could be kind of dependent in general, but might become very dependent in a group if the group needed them to be that way. And uh, that can create a lot of uh, feelings in the individuals as they sort of get slotted into these roles, but also um, anyone who reminds the individuals of those people, you know, like say with a dependent group member, say a Uh, another group member had a younger sister who was very dependent and had a lot of issues with her sister and then transfers all those feelings onto the group member. Did that sort of thing happen? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. What was your role? Originally, my role, and I I started my process group as a client as I was starting my graduate program for, you know, my master's program from, uh, uh, community and trauma counseling. So as I was starting my program, I was also starting my group. So I started to really like my identity as a therapist. That totally bled into my process group. I started to be not necessarily the third therapist, but I started to kind of use that like professional hat in in my process group. And it actually hindered my growth a lot. Because, you know, as you know, um, you don't enter into relationships in the same way if you're being a therapist. You know, um, you're kind of being a little bit more protective and um, you're not really disclosing too much about yourself. There are things that you just don't reveal about yourself. And so so in that way, I was being a therapist. Um, and so over time, like reflecting on that I you know it's hard to say what my role kind of transformed into but I liked it a whole lot better because I was getting my needs met more directly 
um, rather than, you know, just putting on like a, a strong face and just not getting my needs met. I, I was able to, you know, let people in on what was actually happening for me and I could actually get the help that I needed. Did someone call you out on that or did you just come to that conclusion on your own? Good question. I think a combination of things. I had some kind of negative experiences a couple years ago and no one had known even in this group that I had been in for years, no one knew that I was going through something really hard. And um, I finally told them and they were like, we had no idea. And I was like, really? And so I kind of put it together. Hey, like, I must look a lot stronger than I am right now because I really need some help and I, I must not be communicating that I need help. So, so it was a series of things that happened. If I remember right, you were emailing me about the, that situation. Am I remembering that? Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Was So could you email me before you told the group or were you emailing me about yeah. that after you told the group? No, that, that was, you were before, before I talked to my group about that. So you could tell this random podcaster about it, but not, not your, not your group. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, that's good. I, and I'm guessing every group member had similar arcs of discovery. Um, you know, everyone resorts to their comfort zone, right? And their defenses. Um, and that was your arc. And I'm, you know, really glad for you in that way. It's a wonderful thing to wake up and say, oh, yeah, that's right. I have needs, too. It's fine that I want to help other people, but I also have needs and I have reasons, family of origin reasons, perhaps, as to why I deny those needs, why I resort to a certain kind of um, position of being strong and um, helpful while uh, avoiding the pain and, and fear of just laying it all out there. So what was it like to just lay it all out there? It was really scary for sure um, because it was sort of counter to what I would normally do. Um, But I think the fact that I trusted the group and, you know, genuinely had a positive experience with them and they sort of embraced me. And, you know, one of the members told me, you know, whatever version of Emily walks through that door that's the version we want to see. And that was really powerful for me to hear that. What kinds of defenses kicked in as you were taking that leap? The, the sorts of defenses were, I shouldn't reveal this because they're going to reject me. Ah, like they're going to think you're what weak or silly or they're going to think I'm weak or that, yeah, I'm weak that I shouldn't even be a therapist, all, all those things that are really actually my thoughts about me. And learn defenses based on your history, right? Right, right. So how do you carry that over into your work with your own clients and process groups? Yeah, good question. I guess I feel very privileged in knowing how, how healing it can be to be in a group. Yeah, how do, what was the question? Sorry. Well, I'm just imagining if I were in your shoes... I am starting my own process group Uh and I'm thinking, okay, uh, I know what it feels like to be on the other side of this. It's scary. There are defenses that people will kick that will, people will engage in to 
um, defend themselves in the way that they've learned. They're trying to get past their defenses, but it might take a while. There are roles that people will um, develop into. And uh, I'm just thinking from my own experience of running groups that I would just allow it to happen at first. I wouldn't really push it too much because there's just so many other things that need to get done before uh, the group can handle me confronting anyone or gently nudging somebody, Um, such as just people feeling comfortable, people liking each other, people liking me. Um, Yes. You know, I wonder if you're kind of in that phase having, um, you know, been in it for a couple of months now. Oh yeah, totally. And then also like the, uh, keeping your eye on and developing hypotheses about different group members and thinking, Oh, okay, well that person kind of looks like the way I did They're They probably are um, worried about seeming weak because of rejection. And, um, you know, I'll keep an eye on that one, that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it actually gives me a little bit more of appreciation for from my group that I was in um, because I can kind of like see how the sausage is made and like, oh, this is kind of interesting. Um, they really knew what they were doing. But yeah, they're, for for my role, a lot of it in the beginning is just kind of like taking a step back and letting the group harmonize on its own. Um, Like, um, I don't know if you've seen the diagram of, you know, how groups are kind of supposed to be. You have like the, um, the wagon wheel with the, the therapist in the middle and there's kind of spokes going out and each, each spoke is supposed to be like a connection that they have to a therapist. Um, that's kind of not the way we want groups to be, especially process groups with, every interaction having to be between the the client and the therapist. And so you have like, if you have five group members, for example, you have like five individual relationships with the therapist and not um, like a, a more of a web approach um, where each of the members has a relationship with each other and the therapist. Um, So you want to be careful that you don't like create a wagon wheel instead of a web Interesting. Yeah, totally. And for people that don't have a mind or haven't been trained to do group therapy or maybe haven't been in groups very much, then I think that's the tendency because for therapists, we're used to building rapport with our clients and being very concerned and very connected with the clients. And also, uh, there's a there's a lot of chaos when you you know when with a web there's more chaos with mm-hmm. a wheel there's a lot less chaos uh, but with that chaos comes opportunity and uh, group therapy and for that matter couple and family therapy uh, a it, good couple and family therapists good group therapists are comfortable and adept at using that web to uh, the benefit of everybody and but you have to be comfortable with it in fact. One of the things that I will say to people as they come to my university trying to figure out which program they want to enter, because we have a lot of programs at our university. We have a couple on family therapy programs. We have individ, you know, uh, mental health counseling programs and site E programs. And one of the things that I say is when I came to Antioch um, it, it, and when I was 24 at Open House, I only knew about individual therapy. But when my mentor, Paul David, uh, said – 
so I'm starting a new program and it's called, well, you didn't say new program. I found it later. It was new, but um, I have a program called couple and family therapy, which is you can see individuals, but you can also see couples and families. And I instantly took to that because I thought, man, that just sounds so much more interesting to do all those forms, you know, to individual. And whereas other people, when they hear that, they're like, oh, my God, couple and family therapy, that sounds terrifying. <laughs> and uh, that's maybe a litmus test for what sort of therapist you are. You know, some people for their entire career, it's, it's just like they stick to individual therapy. And that's great. That's a wonderful form of therapy. Other people are like, yeah, individual therapy is great. But man, the excitement of getting into it with six other people or three other people or two other people um, and their relationship and you know, the, the, the chaos and randomness that can occur just seems like a creative uh, storm that I want to get into. Are you that kind of therapist, Emily? Oh yeah, for sure. I, I, I love like therapeutic storms. Like when, when we can, when I can get into the here and now and the relational part of an individual um, relationship. Oh man, I could just like spread that on some butter and just eat it up. I love it. I, I mean, spread it on some toast and eat it up. It's, it's like my, it, that is, that is me. I love that. Um, but the funny thing is I'm extremely introverted um, you know, you had that episode with Bob recently where you, you know, did the, in, the introvert extrovert test. Um, and you were something like a, I forget, like a 50 something. Um, I took that same test and I was a 16, a 16 out of 100. Wow. Um, as far as introverts and that's on the really, really low end of, of introvert. So yeah. I'm very introverted, but there's something about a group that just like hypes me up. And, um, and I, I would much rather deal with the chaos of uh, a, a group than with, you know, actually, I mean, I like individual and I like groups, so I, I can't compare, but definitely, I'm definitely drawn to groups. Well, it sounds like you'd much rather deal with the chaos of a process group than actually going to a party with real people. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, no, that's no. Yeah, no. <laughs> well, just while we're on that topic, I'm, I'm curious what sort of markers of introversion are present with you. I tend to keep my friend group pretty small. Um, I don't really like a lot of noisy places. I need a lot of alone time. I have kind of constructed my schedule so that I kind of have control over when I can be alone. But also, I really love being social in, in, in some ways. Like, I, you know, my job is very social. Being a therapist is very, very social. Also, being a professor is very social. And I, and I actually get really energized when I'm teaching, you would not know that I'm an introvert if you saw me teaching because I'm very energetic. But as soon as I stop and go home, I'm like, I, I want to take a nap because I'm just really exhausted from all the energy that I exerted. Whereas another professor might say, hey, let's meet up with some friends and go out for a drink or something. You just have to recharge by going home and being by yourself. Is that right? Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah, interesting. Uh, just curious, what courses are you teaching? Right now I'm teaching intro to psych. I teach undergrad. So I'm teaching two sections of intro psych and then a small group dynamics. 
How are you making Intro to Psych interesting? Because when I took it so long ago, I was bored out of my mind because it was a survey of everything possible. You know, it, it Pavlov's dog and Freudian structure and uh, behaviorism, you know, simple concepts. And every every other day, we just switched to another uh, surface area. Um, how do you keep it interesting? That's funny. I I actually wasn't a psych major in my undergrad. I took one psych class and I hated it. And I was like, I'm never doing that again. And it's so funny that now I'm teaching it. I actually really love teaching intro because, you know, we go like puddle deep into each of these topics. And so for me, I I kind of approach it like, you know, a lot of my students aren't really going to take another psych class and I'm okay with that. But also a lot of my students, you know, need this stuff in their everyday life, what we're going to go over. Um, so, so I kind of use it as a way to like help um, facilitate some self-reflection. And I found that that has been really helpful in getting people motivated. And I've got some pretty good feedback. How many students are in each section? 25 people in, in uh. each section. Mine was a thousand. I had it. There were a thousand <laughs> at U- University of Washington. <laughs> it was a very common class for freshmen to take. Anything else you want to say about process groups? Another part of process groups is conflict. Um, that is, you know, a thing that everyone's scared of when they start a group. They're like, oh gosh, everyone's going to start fighting. Um, or at least that's what <laughs> my fear was when I first started. Um, But conflict doesn't always mean that the group isn't working. In fact, you know, part of the role in being a therapist in the group is to kind of like take the conflict and um, uh, manage it almost like you would, you know, mess with the volume on a car stereo. You know, if the group is like really um, harmonizing and sounding real great, you know, you want to kind of notice that and be like, okay, I'm noticing that the group is really harmonizing. It couldn't possibly be this great. Like, I, you know, uh, let me just like kind of turn the, the conflict on a little bit, not to incite conflict, not to like start a fight or anything, but just to kind of like push the buttons a little bit. Um, and you don't want to start conflict because conflict is going to happen regardless of what you do. Um, Because if there's enough work being done, the conflict will happen naturally. It's kind of inevitable. Um, So, so yeah, but you don't want to make it too conflictual um, or people will leave prematurely. Um, So you want to kind of like manage that, the conflict in that way. Um, And conflict is a, is a huge thing. Um, but conflict between members is really natural and it can almost become like a sibling rivalry because like I said, process groups kind of, um, uh, resemble the family of origin. And so, um, a lot of times the therapist is seen as the parent. Um, and so a lot of what's happening, especially in the beginning of the group is, they're trying to like figure out, am I the favorite? Is that person the favorite? Oh, the therapist likes them more than me. Um, and so that's where some of the conflict can arise. 
in the sibling rivalry, but also the conflict can arise because um, there can be members that kind of look like each other. Um, and the conflict can kind of represent like a hall of mirrors in a way. Um, like um, someone might do something that reminds me of me and I can get very angry about that. And instead of like getting angry at myself or, you know, reflecting on that for myself, I'm actually getting mad at that person for behaving in a way that I find it unacceptable, but it's actually me. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Did that happen to you as a group member? Was someone like you that you didn't like, and then figured out later it was just the hall of mirrors issue. Oh, sure. Yeah. Of course that happened. <laughs> yeah. Starting this process group, you know, I've, I've had some really cool things happen to me in my career so far, and I'm very lucky um, to have that. But starting this group was really hard. It took almost a year to start it, but it's really picked up in a way that I wasn't really expecting. And I really, really love it. And it's actually been kind of the highlight of my career so far. And I really genuinely believe that. What was hard about getting it going? I mean, I could imagine like marketing it and getting the space and all that kind of stuff. What, um, were those some of the barriers? Getting, you know, enough people to, to want to do it at the same time and to find that those people would actually fit into a group. Is, is the plan to have these people in the group for as long as they want to be in the group? Yes. Originally, I started the group with like a, a time limit on it, but then the group actually decided to continue, which I was really happy about. And do you have a co-therapist? No, I do not. And the group is like six max, maybe? Yeah, six to seven max. If people out there want to start your own process groups as therapists, talk to Emily. You can hit her up on Instagram where? My Instagram is Emily Capelli MS. And my email address is Emily at bodylovetherapy.com. And if you're interested in groups, you can also contact Emily if you're in the Philadelphia area. Would you start another group if you had a, enough people signing up? Oh my gosh, I would love to start a second group. The only thing though with that is I'm starting uh, my PhD program in the fall. And so I'm a little hesitant to start a second group right away because I want to kind of figure out what, what my schedule is going to yeah. be. It's a human sexuality PhD. Oh, interesting. I'm doing their sex therapy track. Yeah, it's quite a popular thing, I think, these days. And uh, we just started one at Antioch, too, in our program, Couple and Family Therapy. And the interesting thing in our area, I don't know if Philadelphia is similar, is that there's so few. In order to become a certified sex therapist, you have to be supervised by a certified sex therapist with a certain amount of experience. But since there's so few certified sex therapists, we're having a hard time getting the ball rolling in the initially. Yeah. Um, so a lot of our professors are actually becoming certified sex therapists so that they can train people to become sex therapists so that they can train the next generation and, um, or the next batch, I should say. And um, so uh, is it similar in Philadelphia? I, I, you know, I don't know. And I think, you know, if I would answer that, I, it wouldn't be accurate because I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll find out, I suppose. Yeah. 
yeah, it's a fascinating area. Uh, what attracts you to that? Um, that's a good question. Um, you know, I've always been interested in like things that people don't talk about ever since I was a little kid. Yeah, I, I'm very much into interested in what people don't say. And I think sexuality is one of those things, one of those things that we really don't talk about, but everyone has some hand in. And, you know, I'd really like to change that. You know, one of the things I wrote in my essay to get in was um, the reactions that people had to me saying, oh, I'm going to apply to this sexuality program were, was emblematic of why I wanted to do it. Because a lot of people were like, ooh, that's hot. Or like, oh, what do you want to do that for? Or they'd kind of wrinkle their nose or some people would get like really embarrassed. And to me, it's like, why? You know, yeah. why do people do that? Not in a judgmental way, but like, I'm just very curious about that. Oh, no, I judge it. Uh, there's something deeply wrong with our society. This not, there's nothing wrong with those individuals, obviously. Right. They're just following their programming. But uh, I absolutely judge that. I think it's, um, you know, you've heard me talk on the podcast before, probably. The cultural element, that strong element that uh, motivates the crinkling of the nose also prevents people from coming forward when they're sexually assaulted, yeah. prevents people from coming forward when they're being sexually harassed, prevents our governments from understanding the importance of politicians and judges who do these kinds of things. It's all just swept underneath the rug and it is abhorrent to me. Um, so not only are there obviously these bad things that happen, but all the good things that could happen from sexuality are being prevented too. People locked in and ashamed. And were you one of those kids who would ask adults like embarrassing questions? No, no. I it actually wasn't even like that. It was just you know, I think I would just like observe things about what was going on and kind of comment on it. And people would be like, "No, no, you know, that's not that's not what's happening here." That actually kind of taught me to like not trust my instincts but eventually I learned to, to trust my instincts but uh yeah it was more about like like I was sort of the the kid that was like the emperor's not wearing any clothes you know I liked calling things out as I saw it and that wasn't necessarily a good thing I can't really think of a specific example of that yeah I have a, I have a niece like that she asks when she was young she'd be 10 years old and we'd just be at the beach or something you know building a sandcastle and she'd just look up at me and she'd just say are you afraid to die? <laughs> <laughs> and I loved those kinds of questions because I, she was genuinely interested in the answer and I would ask her the questions back and um, and, I, and I think part of it was she just kind of liked to mess with people a little bit um, but I also think she was similar to to you and me in that she wanted to actually talk about some of these tough topics. Um, so anyway, well, yeah. it's been great having you on the show, Emily, to talk about process groups. A lot of people, as I said, were asking uh, us to talk about it at some point. It is an important area. It's, it's a neglected area in our field as professionals. Uh, I, I It makes me wonder if we had bigger, more robust systems of helping clinicians start their own process groups or if agencies dedicated the money and the funds and the space to do this more or, of course, insurance paid better for it. 
uh, it would uh, really help a lot. I think there's very unique things that can happen healing-wise and growth-wise in group therapy and specifically process groups that you really just can't get anywhere else, or at least at the accelerated pace at which process groups provide. And it's it's just this shame that we are so rigid and locked in and our system supports only individual therapy uh, and uh, doesn't recognize the evidence, really, that all these other forms are helpful. Um, and in a sense, you could say that although group therapy, you know, $70 an hour for five or six people um, – or $70 per session, I should say, hour and a half. And, I, and of course, you're probably not doing something directly after. Um, so it's really kind of two hours of your time. In a way, you could say it's cheaper to insurance companies because they only have to pay $70 uh, per client instead of, say, $140 per client if it was individual therapy. So it's a little weird to me that insurance companies don't um, actually reimburse well for this sort of thing. Um, but... People like you are out there making it happen, and uh, I commend you for that. It's it's great. You obviously enjoy it, and um, I, I hope. But I mean, you know, I understand during your PhD program slowing down, but definitely after, uh, you're probably free to to do. You know, a sex therapy sexuality process group would be interesting. Oh man, yeah, yeah. Thanks for coming on the show, Emily. It's always great to talk with you and uh, get that podcast started. <laughs> We'll see. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there. Please take care of yourself. Why, Emily, should people take care of themselves? Because they deserve it.